This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and it is so cool to be able to talk about politics and religion, the stuff we're not supposed to talk about, right? But we get to talk about it with some of my favorite writers, thinkers, leaders, and regular guys like me. All kinds of people of goodwill in good faith. It's an honor to be able to share that this program is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And if you're listening for the first time, I'm so grateful. I, I really am. We, we've I've seen a nice spike in, in how many people are listening. That's great. So if you dig what you hear, please subscribe to this program or follow us, depending on which app you're listening to. And then find us on other apps and follow us there. We're pretty easy to find. If you type in talking politics with an apostrophe after the end and talking T-A-L-K-I-N apostrophe politics for talking politics and religion without killing each other. And then tell a friend, give us a good rating, leave a review. All of that helps get the word out so more people can participate in these wonderful conversations like the one we're having today with Jennifer Rubin. Jennifer Rubin writes reported opinion for the Washington Post and is the host of Jen Rubin's Green Room, a great new podcast. I've already listened. I was so excited when I heard the trailer, listened to the first couple episodes, and I'm really looking forward to future conversations. Jennifer Rubin covers politics and policy, foreign and domestic, and provides insight into the conservative movement, the Republican and Democratic parties, and threats to Western democracies. Jennifer is also an MSNBC contributor and was with Commentary Magazine before joining The Post. Prior to her career in journalism, Jennifer practiced labor law for two decades in my neck of the woods here in Hollywood. She is also the author of the 2022 book, an excellent read, by the way, Resistance, How Women Saved Democracy from Donald Trump, and is now the host of the new podcast, Jen Rubin's Green Room. Who would ever want to do such a crazy thing as host a podcast. <laughs> Jen Rubin, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So I love how you started off your very first episode of the new podcast, Jen Rubin's Green Room. You suggest we, the listeners, imagine welcoming you and your guests into our living room, figuratively, of course, pouring a glass of wine, settling in as we uh, enjoy a conversation among friends. And I, I mentioned before we hit record that I'm somewhat of a student of podcasting. And you picked on something, you picked up on something about podcasting that a lot of others seem to miss that the intimacy of it, like the 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 more personal feel of it. Did you, I was curious if you studied podcasting before you started hosting it, or if it's just something you picked up on from being a, from listening and being guests on other podcasts. The genesis of this was twofold. One, I enjoy other people's podcasts. So yes, I had been listening. But it really struck me that the most fun I have during the week is the offline conversation. We used to have it all the time in a physical green room when we used to meet before hits on TV. And now we do it in direct messaging and emails and Zooms and chats. And I always thought that that was like the best part, the part that the larger audience doesn't necessarily see or hear. And I thought if I could capture that part and actually bring it to viewers, they would get a different flavor, a different tone than we normally get in these very structured, very buttoned up kind of conversations. We could have more fun and be a little bit more controversial perhaps as well. You know, it's interesting you say that because the second episode I just listened to yesterday and you, you, you captured, well, I should say your guest captured exactly that. He shared this story. It was Matthew Dowd, one of my favorite thinkers out there. And he was sharing a story about a panel he was on. I think it was an ABC panel that he was on with Matt Schlapp. And I always suspected watching those panels, these guys are saying the right talking points and there's a lot of decorum there. What's it like in the green room? And he shared this story about Schlapp just taking him to task over something. He was actually candid on air. So. You, you're, exactly. you're doing a great job and already. <laughs> it, it really is. And I think the medium leads, you know, leans, lends itself to that kind of, you know, conversation. And I think a couple of times he said, you know, I don't think I've ever said this before. And then he gave us, you know, a little bit of something. You know, the other thing that I love doing about this is you meet a lot of friends and a lot of people in this, you know, business and you make these relationships. And 
you want to share that relationship because that's part of what we do too. It's not simply writing whatever comes into our heads. It's talking to people. It's thinking about what other people are saying, what other people are reading. And so a lot comes out of those relationships. A lot of that informs what I'm writing. And so I want to share that and have listeners pick up on the sense of what's the kind of conversation I have that then germinates in my brain and comes out as a column or comes out as a book or comes out as a, uh, you know, soundbite on uh, MSNBC. Yeah. You know, I was curious, it's clear that you have some longstanding relationships with incredibly intelligent people with impressive backgrounds. I was wondering if you planned on having anyone on the, on the show, on the new podcast, that you've disagreed with, you know, describing the Matt, Matthew Dowd, Matt Schlapp interaction. Is there someone that you find yourself disagreeing with more often than not? You know, it, it makes me think of, I was looking at a YouTube video of you and Chris, MSNBC host. I can't, I just completely brain. Chris Hayes? Chris Hayes. Oh, what a robust debate. It was about the Iran nuclear deal. And I love that back and forth. You were both clearly very, very informed. I'm curious if you're planning on having folks that you largely disagree with on the program and having those kinds of debates. Absolutely. And one of the things I want to talk to and about are things in which I want to communicate to the audience that you don't have to agree with everything the other person has said or is saying in order to find something that is very informative, very provocative, and has changed your thinking. And that is certainly true on how I've started to think about race, how I've started to think about criminal justice reform. I don't agree with many people who are my friends on all of these issues. But I want to model for the audience, because we've gotten into this habit of saying, I don't care what that person is saying, I don't listen to so-and-so, or I don't pay attention to anything that person reads. It's ridiculous that even if someone disagrees with you 80% of the time, 20% could be jewels, could be little pearls of wisdom. Absolutely. And I think one of the experiences I had in moving from the Republican side to the Democratic side during the Trump era was to understand that in moving your kind of political affiliation, there are going to be lots of things that you disagree with. And that may not be more important than the things that you do agree on which are these basic fundamentals of democracy. And it may also be that the things that you disagree on are interesting and provocative. And we all have this pretense that we've made up our minds and everything, that we are we have an answer. We're like an answer person. What do you think of this? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And sometimes the honest answer is, I don't know. Or sometimes the honest answer is, I can see both sides of it. And that was very true for me, for example, during this in the student loan forgiveness debate. I really saw both sides. And to this day, I'm not sure if someone said, are you for or against? It's, I want to hear the arguments. I want to hear what the concerns are. And I think we've lost so much of that in part because one part of the political spectrum has gotten so crazy and so nuts. You can't have a nuanced conversation. And people on the other side, the coalition of the same feel like they don't want to have disagreements because that might somehow prejudice their ability to stand up to the bad guys. So I think the people who are in the world of sanity and decorum and democracy should model these conversations. I just had a really interesting little conversation online. It wasn't very long. It was on Twitter with Representative Ro Khanna, who is someone, again, who I tremendously respect. I do not always agree with him. And he made a comment to the fact that he was not going to vote for the deficit or the debt ceiling act, and that he thought this was unconstitutional. And we went back a little bit and we kind of clarified. And I said, you know, whatever you think of the debt limit, a deal that you make isn't necessarily constitutional. And he said, you know, you're right on that. That's true. The forcing us into debt would be unconstitutional. He said, but I'm still going to vote against it. And My response to that is, okay, but I think you got to acknowledge that this was an overwhelmingly favorable deal for Democrats. All the things the Republicans wanted to do, none of them got done. Essentially, Biden has a continuing resolution for the rest of his presidency and doesn't have to worry about the debt ceiling. 
And again, he came back and said, you know, I acknowledge that during the caucus meeting we had among Democrats, I still don't feel comfortable voting for the bill. That was exactly the kind of conversation I think we need more of, where two people respect each other. I've talked to him many times. I think he's one of the smartest guys, but I also don't agree with him all the time. So I would hope that podcasts are a place where you can do that. So long as the person is operating in good faith, and clearly some people are not, you can have an informed conversation and sometimes people change their mind. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how you're able to shift gears back and forth, you know, from, from podcast to a podcast medium, you are able to have those more fleshed out conversations uh, and, and explore some nuance. Whereas you have to distill that down a little bit more when you're on MSNBC, a, a seven or 10 minute segment, and you have to talk in 15 seconds or less versus Twitter. I actually enjoy Twitter, Jennifer. You, there's like this inner rapscallion that comes out in you a lot of the times. It's you know, a- it is it is a guilty pleasure. First of all, you can waste endless time when you have something you should be doing. There's nothing like going on Twitter and like wasting an hour of your life. But there are several things I love about Twitter. One, I am a wise acre and I love you know, the one-liners, the cracks, the digs, the, you know, sarcastic observations, particularly when everyone is piling on about DeSantis rollout, for example, or some ludicrous thing that Donald Trump said. But it's also because every once in a while, you have these really interesting exchanges. And oh, by the way, a lot of the relationships I have made, particularly during the COVID years, were through Twitter. And some of my close personal friends are people who I initially met on Twitter. Thank goodness I've now seen them in three dimensions, but the initial contact was through Twitter. Yeah. Someone analogized it to this great cocktail party that is going on next door. And you could open the door whenever you want and kind of walk in and schmooze <laughs> around for a while. You you should be doing other things back home, but then right. you can close the door. It's okay because they'll be there two hours, three hours, four days later, when you want to go back to the cocktail party. And that's kind of what it is. And once you discover that you don't have to watch, you don't have to follow um, anyone you don't want to, and you don't have to have in your stream anyone you don't want to, that made my life, you know, very easy, very happy. Yeah. You know, I was curious about some of your formative years. You shared something at the end of the book, something you said that, that really caught my attention. You said, I am fortunate to have parents who prized education and whose spirited debates at the dinner table over the decades encouraged me to think critically. You also said they instilled in me a love of politics and history and of newspapers. Throughout my childhood, there was always at least one newspaper dropped on our driveway and left in the kitchen to peruse throughout the day. So what did you learn from your parents, those dinner table conversations, having access to newspapers? Right. I'll date myself a little bit. I was a child growing up in the late 60s and 70s in Southern California. And I like to characterize my mom as a Hubert Humphrey Democrat. And my dad, at least at that time, as an Eisenhower Republican. So there were differences, but they were not so extreme that they couldn't have these debates back and forth. But whatever the issue of the day is, whether it was Watergate or the Vietnam War, there were conversations going on. And it wasn't a conversation going above the kids' heads. It was everyone contributing. And if you're going to contribute, you were expected to be serious and have a point or something to say. And if you wanted to be with the grownups and keep up, you got to read the newspaper. You have to be informed. So they really set, I think, a pattern for very informed public readership and citizenship. And not only did they get newspapers, but they had some of the great magazines of our time, Harper's Weekly, The Atlantic, Newsweek. So there was this flood of stuff coming into the household and you didn't have to read stuff cover to cover. And as a kid, you were busy with school and other activities, but you could pick up enough of it. And what they really communicated to me was not a specific position on any of these things, but the importance of keeping up, the importance of being an informed citizen that it was not optional for you to be uninformed. That was not acceptable. It didn't really matter what your position was on an issue. You just had to be informed to be able to explain yourself. And um, I never understood as a kid or even as an adult how people could not vote, how people could not get a newspaper. And 
maybe that's a little narrow thinking on my part, but it was just so much a part of my growing up, like breathing or eating that I just assumed that was what everyone did. Unfortunately, not everyone does that, but it really helped create a kind of assumption of political literacy, if you will, that really, you know, informed me. Um, and I suppose everyone has this experience, but I know there were a lot of interesting things happening in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. It wasn't a time without, you know, news. And once you get into the flow of things, it's like that Twitter conversation. Once you feel like you can keep up, it's fun. You want to keep keeping up. You want to keep um, listening to, reading, talking to the smart people. And that's kind of what my you know, early years were, um, were like. So I'm, I'm imagining those dinner table conversations. And I'm wondering if, if young Jennifer were, was being challenged, if your opinions, if your positions were being challenged by either, I think you said Hubert Humphrey leaning mom and Eisenhower leaning dad. Is that what maybe, if that is the case, is that what maybe had you thinking in terms of your, the first part of your career as a lawyer? Yeah, I think I always wanted to be a lawyer, in part because I did like arguing. I did like making an argument and pushing it forward. And I just felt that law was important, that this was foundational to all these issues that were swirling around us, that this is what a free society depended upon. Perhaps as a kid, I imagined I would be arguing great constitutional issues before the Supreme Court, which didn't really happen. But it nevertheless gave me the sense that this was important, that it was fun to make a well-constructed argument, and that it was fun to have to think on your feet and to respond to what the other person was saying or was doing. One of the skills you learn, obviously, as a lawyer, you file your papers. The other side sends a opposition. You have to do a reply. So you not only have to be able to make an argument, you have to be able to listen and read and understand what the other person is saying and being able to analyze and figure out what's wrong with it. So that was great, actually, preparation for journalism. And I wish more journalists, frankly, would have that kind of background, because I think sometimes journalists get into this habit of being kind of stenographers and being more passive or simply recording X says this, Y says that, rather than putting it all together and trying to explain who's right on which point and bring some clarity to the issue for their readers and their viewers. You know, you bring up a really interesting point. I've, I've In my own intro that I was cutting and pasting from a, a few other bios, you're described as someone who writes, quote unquote, reported opinion for the Washington Post. Maybe it's just me, and I'm, I'm ignorant to this, that I don't think I've seen that description before. So can you describe what it means, reported opinion? It was actually the the brainchild and the concept of Fred Hyatt, the great, unfortunately, prematurely taken from us, Fred Hyatt, who was the head of the editorial board. He himself came from the news side. And he always insisted that if you're writing either a column or you're an outside contributor, or you're writing one of the unsigned in-house editorials, that you had to bring some facts to the argument, that you had to do some actual legwork yourself, that opinion writing is not simply, I think X, or I'm going to sit in my living room thinking great thoughts. It had to entail actually turning up more information, talking to people, reporting people, observing things, and that that was as important as your final conclusion. And so I think on the Washington Post news side, you have always had great reporting, the Watergate people, but on the opinion side, you've also had great reporting in some sense. So I think it's it was of his brainchild, but it was so instilled, I think, in all of us that we don't even think about it. I wouldn't dream of sitting down and simply writing like what I think, and that's my legal training as well. What supports that position? What piece of data do you have? What conversation have you had that would support that? What are experts saying about this? So I really do look at columns in some sense like a legal brief. I got to have an argument, but I got to have facts. I have to have an explanation. I have, to have a logical argument. And I have to have data, facts. 
Uh, and I think and we've gotten so far away from fact-based discussions or fact-based argument that it explains some of this talking past one another that we have. And I think you've got to bring people back to reality and make them wrestle with the facts. What's It's not simply this person says the debt reduction deal is great and this person says it's not. What's in the deal? Explain it. Figure out the nuance. So that's kind of the the origin and the history of reported opinion. That's great. You know, I do want to ask you about your a little bit about your, your legal career. And certainly there's some topics of the day that I want to get to. But since you mentioned Fred Hyatt, I've I've read, I have I have some other acquaintances who share what kind of inf- influence Fred Hyatt was on their careers. And I've actually read in a couple of places, he had your back in some tough spots. So for folks who don't know, could you share a little bit more about who Fred Hyatt was and perhaps what kind of influence he had on your career as a writer? He was, first of all, one of the kindest, most decent human beings I have ever met. He was totally without ego. He wanted his people to shine. And when you were right, he had your back. And when you were wrong, he would urge you, push you to be big about a mistake. In other words, even if you thought you were absolutely right, maybe the person complaining or asking for the correction has a point. Is there something that we can say that addresses what their point is? So sometimes we would get annoyed as columnists, like, I don't have to explain myself, my column speaks for itself. But he had this sense of respect for the readership that we should be intellectually magnanimous enough, not simply to make a correction, but to add something that we may have left out or to refine a point that we had made. And so that sticks with me to this day. He began his career, as I said, on the news side. He was a magnificent foreign correspondent. He and his dear wife, who still works for the Post, were the Washington, were the Russia bureau chiefs at you know an incredible period of time as communism was falling. One of his passions, and it was throughout his life, was human rights and democracy. He championed the causes of individuals and groups around the world, whether it was China, whether it was Russia. He was absolutely unfailing in his support and defense of freedom and civil liberties. And I think he really impressed upon us all that it was not simply an issue, but it was a foundational value. The dignity of every human being had to be at the center of a set of values that we believed in and that we were willing to defend. And that was true if the offense was coming from an ally of the United States. It was true if the offender was the United States. And it was true, obviously, if it was a opponent of the United States. In that respect, I think I had always been interested and quite devoted to the cause of human rights. But what I saw from him was not only an intellectual understanding, but a personal champion of individuals who he made relationships, whose stories he elevated so the public at large would understand the government that they were facing and the plight of these individuals. That, I think, was really the cornerstone of his value system. And the last thing I'll say is I joined the Post when I was well into my career as an adult. But he hired very young people and really nurtured their careers. And there is a whole flock of 30-somethings at the Washington Post who were really started in this business by Fred Hyatt. He hired them, and he just didn't hire them and set them loose. He would mentor them. He would talk to them. He would encourage them. He would give career advice to them. It was a huge, huge loss for us when we lost Fred. And I think For some of those younger people, he was almost like a father figure for them in terms of bringing them in, nurturing them, caring about them as individuals. He was the only boss who I ever knew who, when you said, I'm taking taking my vacation for two weeks, he said, oh, where are you going? What are you going to see? What are you going to, you know, and he would take an interest in the person. It wasn't this formulaic employer-employee relationship. So he's dearly, dearly missed, but I had great good fortune to work for him for 13 years. And, you know, it's, you know, a, a 
a, a mantra with people who work at the Post, talked about the house that Fred built, meaning this set of values and this set of standards. And sometimes when I'm facing a decision, I'm thinking, okay, what would Fred Hyatt tell me to do? And that does help. <laughs> now, usually it says, okay, tone it down, Jennifer. <laughs> or it says, okay, and the senator has a point. Maybe you didn't go a little too far. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I could see where having that kind of guidance an older brother figure would help you continue that transition from a pretty renowned legal career to being, you know, a very influential writer and thinker. I did want to ask you about your legal career. I was trying to place where you were because I started my career. I have a little bit of a exec search and and a small scale M and A practice in in the entertainment business, but I always stayed on the creative advertising side. So I was trying to picture. But one of my formative experiences when I was first starting out was the SAG strike in two, I think it was 2001. And I'm trying to imagine where you were in those, were you representing the studios in those negotiations? I was, I was, I was on the labor side. I was on the, the management side rather in labor negotiations. So I was with the studios from 19, let me think about this, 1990 to 2005. Okay, that was right um, and, smack in, in, at the height yeah. of your career. Wow. Yes. And, you know, when I, now there's a Writers Guild strike going on. Yeah. I so feel for both sides because I know what both sides are going through. And, you know, these long, endless nights and essentially a strike is when you failed. Both sides have failed because the goal is not to have a breakdown, not to put people out of work, not only the people you're negotiating with, but this larger community. As you know, the Los Angeles community is so heavily driven by the entertainment industry that when SAG or WGA or DGA goes on strike, it's not only those people, but it's the caterers, it's the it's all the adjacent. Yeah. Yes, all of these businesses. So it's a it's a huge, huge loss. I and it's funny, I learned so much from that that now I apply when I'm observing and covering political negotiations and political deal making because the dynamics are very very similar in a lot of ways mm. and so you can figure out what they're doing oh i know what they're up to i've seen this routine before and you know some of the the lessons the the rules of the road that i learned as a labor negotiator applied to whatever negotiation you're working on whatever kind of large interpersonal dynamic it was a lot of fun i Los Angeles, as you know, is not a heavily unionized town. There's a whole history of that going back to the L.A. Times and kind of union busting in Los Angeles. So if you want to do labor law, the entertainment industry, although you don't think of that as like union guys, it's like the best place to do it because there are a zillion unions, as you know. So you're always negotiating with someone and you have to negotiate with your fellow companies that are sitting on the same side with you in our multi-employer bargaining. So it, it was a great experience. I loved it. Unfortunately, you got in these negotiations and it was like 24-7, day Oof. after day after day. Wow. It takes a toll on people and, and on families. I, I have to ask you, like, I, I've experienced these strikes, the 01 SAG strike, the I think it was the 2008 a writer strike, and then this one. I always feel like it's it's a loved one, like a kid or a sibling that I love very much, but I'm just shaking my head. I'm like, you're putting yourself in harm's way. <laughs> like, you know, they're, you know, I remember in 01 thinking they're negotiating, the SAG was negotiating for things they didn't necessarily have the leverage to negotiate for. And I felt that the way that it played out, they ended up doing themselves more harm than good, as well as harm to the rest you know, a, a, like you said, adjacent companies, adjacent aspects of the industry. And I fear that's the case with the writer's strike today. What, how, what is your perspective? Have you been paying attention to it? And what's your perspective? I have. It's funny because not only have I been paying this attention, but I now having been on the inside realize you only are seeing a fraction of the dynamic because you can't really see what's going on unless you're in the room, as they say. And I think there are two things going on that are very, very difficult. One is, as you know, the collective bargaining agreements are written for certain kinds of productions, certain technology, certain methods of distribution. And when those change, it throws all of that up in the air. 
And we're going through this enormous change in the movie industry with streaming, with who's producing these things, with the length of the television shows. So when everything changes, those rules have to change. And no one's exactly sure where the money is and how much money there is. So everyone's groping around and it's really hard to figure out what would be fair when you're just beginning this period of incredible change and incredible upset in the industry. The other issue, which, uh, excuse me, is out there is um, all people in the entertainment industry are in essence gig workers. It's not a nine to five job. Most people do not, who are in the production and in the creative end, do not have a contract for 12 months of the year. And that puts a lot of pressure on them. And that because their benefits or health and retirement benefits are keyed to working enough to qualify for those, when their hours and their days shrink, they face not only a loss of income, but a loss of healthcare coverage. Right. So that is a big issue for the writers who feel like the employers are um, kind of squeezing the time that they actually have writers on, squeezing the number of writers so there are fewer jobs. And that's a really hard problem to overcome because employers don't want to pay for time that they don't think they need. They don't want to have to hire a writer for X number of weeks if they're only going to use them for half that time. But as I said, you want to have people who can at least make a full-time living doing what they do and stay on benefits. So these are really hard issues. And unfortunately, I think it's going to take quite a long time to figure this out. Neither side feels like they have you know all of the answers. Neither side feels like the other side completely understands what they're talking about. So this is going to go on for a while. And what I fear, having been on the management side, is a lot of these companies lose money and they're part of a bigger conglomerate. So parts of their business are money losers and they make it up elsewhere. And I fear that they look at the strike as almost a a money saver for them. As long as we're not producing any movies, we're not losing more money than we are. So that creates a disincentive a set a lack of urgencies, a lack of urgency to push forward. And I certainly hope that that is not taking place, that people realize the urgency. And in Los Angeles, because it's a big issue, you will see the politicians weigh in, you will see the mayor, you will see local representatives weigh in because it's it is and can be so devastating to the local economy. Yeah. Yeah. I so I definitely want to talk about some politics. We've been talking for a half hour. Yeah, we got to politics. But I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about, for lack of a better description, your political evolution, if you will. I, I was going back and reading some of your stuff from commentary from when you first started the Right Turn blog. What, wait, the, it, was that right? Did, am I remembering that right? Right, right Turn blog? Correct. Yeah, Correct. Yeah. We all used to have these names until they said, you know, it's just Jennifer Rubens. <laughs> Jennifer Rubens, <laughs> yeah. And, no. Yeah, yeah. So I was trying to figure out, you know, it seems to me that your core philosophy hasn't really changed that much. That is you know, the irony. Yeah, that, it that is. You, that you have pretty deep philosophical moorings. And it's, it's just everything around you has gotten a little bit more Correct. crazy. Correct. When you think about it, I have always believed in U.S. leadership in the world. I have always believed in human rights. I have always believed in robust legal immigration. I have always believed in free trade. I've always believed in the rule of law. I've always believed in limited government. These are core beliefs that bizarrely became associated with one political party, at least in my mind. That party has completely turned its back on not only all those values, but ones that I never thought would be questioned, the sanctity of elections, the need to relinquish power you know, peacefully, and also a responsibility to at least stay in the same zip code as the truth, you know, and to not really make a politics of complete fabrication of complete lies. And people say politicians lie. Yes, but, 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 you know, there was one party that is not in denial of basic facts, of basic 
realities, is not operating in a realm in which the point is to deceive, the point is to fabricate a new reality. So I think those of us who made this journey did not have the experience that we were shifting. We had the experience that we were in the middle of a body snatchers mo oh, you know, movie, that people around us who we thought believed what we did suddenly were believing this lunacy and were seemingly turning on the values that they once held. Now, did some of my views change over the years? Yes. And I want, I always want readers to understand this because I think we have gotten so used to this notion that you can't change your mind on anything because then you'll be a hypocrite, <laughs> that people are afraid to learn and to see the world around them. And one issue that I have really changed my mind on is guns. Mm. Uh, you know, I, after years of these shootings and the absolute carnage, I don't know how any person can continue to, yes, people, I suppose, have a right to, they do have a right under the current constitutional interpretation to own guns, but they don't have the right to own any gun. And not every person has the right to own any weapon under any circumstance. So I think life has changed my perspective on that. And I think the radicalism on the other side, making gun ownership and kind of a cult where you send around Christmas cards with your kids holding semi-automatic weapons has so turned me off and brought me back to a sense of what is rational? What is reasonable? What obligations do you owe your neighbor? And even if you thought you had a right to purchase an AR-15, is that what's good for society? You want to live in a society in which everyone can purchase one of these weapons? Really? So my thinking on that has shifted. And I think the other thing that has shifted is my view of inequality and government's role in providing a buffer and a corrective fashion, corrective factor to pure economics. I have always been a capitalist. I've always been in favor of free markets. But I think what we've seen in the last 20, 30 years is that a rising tide does not lift all boats. And in fact, the accumulation of enormous wealth at the same time that we are starving government of resources that allow part of the population to live a decent middle-class life is unsustainable. And one of the reasons it's unsustainable is because it's politically unsustainable. You get these demagogues who come along and they incite political unrest and appeal to people's resentment and alienation and greed. So I think I am more amenable to government intervention with limits, with, I think, a proper appreciation for the free market. And again, you got to look at results. I was not in favor of Obamacare, but you know, Obamacare has kind of worked. Healthcare costs are not what's driving these huge inflation. We have many more people covered. That's better for workplaces. That is better for, you know, individuals, for families. And because of the way it was done, that you still had competition from private insurers through these marketplaces, it was a decent compromise, frankly, between people who wanted nothing and people who wanted a single payer system. So I think experience has informed and I think society around us has informed our opinion. I still tend to be the one who is inclined to look at the unintended consequences of government action, who tends to say, do we really know how this is going to work out? Or maybe we shouldn't go all the way on this. A natural sense of conservatism, caution, humility, a sense that there are certain behaviors, certain structures in place that you really don't want to disrupt because they will have adverse consequences. So I think I would now characterize myself as a very centrist Democrat is probably where I am. But I think the views that I hold now, I would say 80% of them are what Ronald Reagan believed in, in 1980. It's just that our politics has shifted so dramatically. People who believe exactly what I believe, including myself, are no longer part of the Republican Party and the right wing kind of atmosphere. You think of the people I, you know, grew up, you know, and admire not only the Christy Todd Whitmans who are considered kind of these liberals out there on the edge, but 
the John McCain's, the you know, kind of the the sensible center of the Republican Party who were strong in defense, who did care about some fiscal responsibility, who weren't nutty on social issues. So I guess it's a mixed bag. I changed, the world around me changed. And I think you also have to appreciate what's important. You have to prioritize. The most important thing to me is not right now, what is the highest marginal tax rate that one should have in a dynamic free economy? It's whether we're going to have a democracy or not. And I will make common cause and lend a helpful voice to anyone who is on the democracy side. And I think one of the things I try to impress upon my new Democratic friends is don't create a purity test that's going to weaken a very strong bipartisan, multifaceted coalition in favor of democracy. Not everyone you're going to like on your side is pure on all the issues you care about. It doesn't mean they're not an important ally. And I do remember people saying, I'm not going to listen to anything Liz Cheney talks about because she was wrong on the Iraq war. She was wrong on abortion. And even if you believe that, who the hell cares? She's out there trying to save democracy right now. So perspective, priorities, focusing in on core values. I think all of us us learn some of these lessons along the way. Yeah. Yeah. What you're describing is what I find encouraging about the last two and a half years. And even most recently here with the debt limit negotiations is that it required all of the achievements of the Biden administration so far, not coincidentally, seem to have been bipartisan, the bipartisan infrastructure bill or having bipartisan support for his actions in Ukraine here recently in his conversations with Kevin McCarthy. But what it required was for Biden himself, <laughs> for for as, as much as Fox News tries to paint him to be this blundering idiot who's completely over the hill, he's been pretty damn effective. You know? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's very odd that um, you know, Kevin McCarthy, who's been part of the, yeah, he's over the hell, he's senile, he's a doddering old fool, comes out and says, oh, by the way, he was really smart in these negotiations. He was really focused. <laughs> well, Guy, you know, we've been saying this, and it doesn't look so good if you're going to say, you know, we were taken to the cleaners by someone with dementia. You know, it, you can't make those two arguments. You can't acknowledge someone's strength and at the same time call them mentally enfeebled. Yeah. But, you know, and part of what Biden has also done is he's found the balance point within his own party. Not everything he has done is bipartisan. And I point to the Inflation Reduction Act. It started off as, you remember, the Build Back Better was a very large bill, very ambitious, lots more spending. And that was not going to fly. And he figured out the position in his party in which this was a truly historic bill in a lot of ways, not the least of which was massive historic investments in green energy, not to mention some drug price controls, not to mention some adjustment in the tax code. By the way, all of that remains after the bipartisan yeah. debt reduction deal. So who won if everything he has accomplished is really intact as he's going forward? So it was still historic. It was a huge advance on a lot of issues Democrats have been pushing for years, but it wasn't nearly everything that they um, had set out their ambitions. And that's the kind of leadership and moderation in all senses of the word that I really appreciate about him, that he there's not perfect unity on the Democratic side, certainly. And there was only a sliver of Republicans that he can do deals with. But somehow he figures out where the deal is and is able to persuade people to, you know, focus in on what's the most advantageous position for everyone involved. And I think people underestimate the degree into which Biden is really transforming the American economy. When we are spending the kind of money we're spending on infrastructure, and on the green energy investments in chips and in other green energy projects. We are putting in billions upon billions of public money followed by private money in places that have been economically hurting for years. 
And I think it will change the lives of a lot of communities. It will change the political climate and emotions of people who have really been cut out of a lot of the economic progress. Um, and the fact that many of these jobs do not require a college education is terrific in my book because we forget only about 30, 35% of the American people have a college education. So you better start creating really good paying jobs for everybody else. So I think he's accomplished a lot. And if the Republicans don't try to undo all of it, I think we may look back upon this as as important, if not more important than something like Obamacare, which people thought was hugely revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. I I want to go back to the podcast and your work as at the end of the day, you're 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 a journalist and you know you're a thinker, you're you're an opinion maker, but I you, you explored an interesting question. I think it was with Matthew Dowd, and I, I've heard you talk about this before. How do you balance between getting the interview? Let's say if it, it, it was someone that you largely disagree with, getting the interview and being fair without doing a puff, a puff piece or a hit job, there, there's a balance there. Because if you do too much of a hit job, you, you in fact, you were talking about the CNN town hall, <laughs> that it, it was a debacle on a lot of levels, but it, that that's a hard balance. How do you get that? It, that's a big get as a journalist. That's a big get as, a, as an outlet. So how do you balance be, between that? If you do too much of a hit job, you'll never get another person from, from an opposing view again. How do you, how do you manage all that? I think your first obligation is always to the truth. And if someone is spouting lies or is hugely uninformed, your obligation as a journalist is to correct them in real time and to press them to address real facts. In that town hall format, it was virtually impossible to do, and, and Trump is virtually impossible to have a coherent conversation with. He may be the one guy that you simply can't interview live and expect to have a meaningful exchange. But I think the other thing is people appreciate having their voice heard in an honest way. In other words, you're not going to edit around what they say or distort what they say and being treated with dignity and with respect. And I think if you do those things, you will establish a certain reputation for fairness and for candor without making yourself a slave to one party or the other. And I also think you have to be willing to say, okay, maybe that person isn't going to talk to me again. You know, if I, he would never do this in a million years, but if Donald Trump ever could, you know, granted me an interview, I'd be fully prepared for the result that he wouldn't want to come back because, <laughs> you know, you have to be willing to risk your future interviews. If the interview that you're doing is of such consequence and, such importance. So I think sometimes media outlets are too afraid of loss of access. And I think there's this natural inclination on television not to have, we talked about this with Matt, not to have dead air, not to have people angry and crosstalk. They want to keep everything nice and everything easygoing. And that has a way of normalizing people who are not normal and making non-credible arguments somehow seem legitimate. I don't think there's anything wrong with dead time if that's what it takes to get someone to spill out what they really think. And I also think there's nothing wrong with exposing when someone doesn't know what they're talking about or is simply wrong on the facts. And you have to be able to call that out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't want to say Donald Trump is such a unique figure because he really does have some copycats, for, for lack of a better description. But uh, I was also curious, you know, you you were one of a few longtime conservative thinkers who publicly criticized Donald Trump very early on, or, you know, early in the 2015 part of the cycle of the 2016 election. And he, you were even a target of uh, one of those whiny little petulant tweet burps oh, that yeah. he does, you know, yeah. what was that like, not just from being the target of, of one of his tweets, but I would imagine there was a slew of his followers that started piling it up. It is unbel unbelievable. When he does that, you have no idea how your Twitter, your email, everything blows up. And you see a side of that movement that is very scary, that is very deranged, that is very irrational, that some of these people are really off the balance beam. Some of these people are violent or inclined to violence. 
but most of all, you see this ugly kind of vicious attack mode. And I think it was, first of all, eye-opening because you saw what a little dose of this would do. He didn't harangue me day after day. Imagine day after day after day. So this kind of intense hate and threats you know, come in daily for an extended period of time. Imagine what that's like. And of course, it also told me a lot about who he was and who his followers were. Yeah. But you're right. Very early on, you know, some of us spotted this and said, I think we've seen this show before in other countries, in other eras. And this is dangerous stuff. And those of us who are students of history and see patterns of how dictatorial figures operate, attacking objective sources of information, creating others in society to ostracize and to attack, operating in a web of denial, operating with a cult of personality, creating a mob mentality that operates without rationality. All of those are telltale signs of bad actors and right-wing movements that have had absolutely horrible results. I used to say I take no joy in being right, but I actually do take some joy in being right because if people had listened sooner, we might have avoided this. And if people continue to listen, I hope we will cut off the career of Donald Trump and more important, people who are his imitators. Because the problem is not Trump. The problem is tens of millions of Americans who now believe these things and who are willing for reasons that sometimes escape us to treat politics as if it is a game or a primal scream, or if it is something other than the business of solving people's problems. They yeah. do not look upon politics as that way. It's something else in their book. And, and when that turns into a kind of politics of dysfunction, of disorder, of chaos, of violence, of anti-democratic sentiment, that becomes a real problem. And he's got tens of millions of supporters out there so the problem will not go away when he goes away. Yeah, you know, you've, I think you've hit upon something really important that some of the conversations we're having aren't even conversations. They're they're all out battles that sometimes break out into violence, like we saw on January 6th. And these these debates, these struggles that we're having are about democracy itself. You know, right. one can be a fiscal conservative, a, you know, foreign policy hawk, for, one can be left leaning or pretty far, pro, you know, pretty far progressive. But at the end of the day, something that may, I would guess that you share in common with an AOC, for example, is that it's about democracy. Um, you, you'd have some vigorous debates on, on specific policy issues, but you still believe in democracy. So with that, I, I want to start to wrap up and I want to ask sure. you the quote unquote TPNR question. Okay. What do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with, have better conversations with, even nurture relationships with people across our differences, people who think differently than we do, have different beliefs than we do, have different news sources than we do? How can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? <laughs> I think it is possible. And part of it is a search for some source of commonality that you have to assume this is not true of everyone because there are bad actors out there. But if that person cares about his family, if that person cares about having a decent physical environment to live on, then you have a starting point. Then there is a value. There is something you're both trying to reach. And then it's a question of debating how you get there or the best way to get there. If you're not operating with the same set of facts or the same values, for example, how do we strengthen our democracy? And the other person says, we don't, I don't want to. You can't really have a conversation about that. On the other hand, if the other person concedes, you know, I think we do have a democracy problem, but the answer is not expanding voting rights. Okay, I think that's slightly nutty because democracy is voting, but okay, let's work with that. Let's talk about what democracy is. Let's talk about what happens when only some people vote. Let's talk about who gets to vote. Let's talk about the legitimacy of what a democracy confers on people in power. In other words, once you flesh out some basic understandings, even if they're wildly different than yours, you can begin to talk rationally, to talk decently to people. And I also think that there are some universal truths and values that 
even the most hard bitten on the right subscribe to. When we had the child separation policy, an overwhelming number of Americans, even Republicans, objected to that because the sight of taking little children away from their parents was untenable. Great. Let's start there. How do we prevent that from happening? And then you could talk about if you made them legal in the first place, you wouldn't have to throw them out. Or if we had stronger borders, they wouldn't show up with their kids. Or you could talk about if they had better lives back in their countries, they wouldn't show up. There's lots of things you can start debating once you reach the conclusion it's a bad idea and it's morally objectionable to be at the point where the United States government is separating kids from their parents, frankly, with no plan to reunite them, which made it even more evil. But that's wrong. We cannot do that. So if you can find a starting point, an agreed upon idea, we want to have public safety. We want to have police officers who are trusted by the community. Then you can begin to discuss what would make things better, what would make things worse. And so finding that commonality, finding a core human value that you share with the other person is a great place to start. Yeah, absolutely. I'm tempted to skip this question out of a respect for time, but do you have any burning questions for me? <laughs> How did you get into this business of podcasting and talking to people and being in the news biz? Oh, that's funny. I It's funny you say the news biz because I haven't put it together that way. I actually started with a podcast about the entertainment advertising industry, and I absolutely fell in love with the medium. And I've always been an avocational, politically engaged, and I'm a Jew from Jersey who became a Christian. So with my family, I've been taught having these tough conversations about religion with my friends, especially in the entertainment industry, being a guy who goes to church, having these tough conversations about politics. And and I've I thought, man, would wouldn't this be important? I I came to the conclusion several years ago. Actually, it was a long time ago. Maybe it was around the time of Sarah Palin that I realized, you know what, more so than any other issue, we're having trouble even talking to each other. So I really wanted to do this this type of podcast. What I've been most encouraged about is folks like you who don't know me from Adam. I'm not. I'm like a nobody. And you respond, hey, yeah, that sounds like fun. So I, it's been just such a thrill and a joy to be able to speak to you and so many other people that are, Pete Wainer and, and John Rausch and just some of my favorite writers and thinkers in the public square to have these tough conversations. It's more I'm, just- I'm- I'm delighted to be in their company. Those two people are two of the people I read and I learn from, terrific thinkers, and who really epitomize what we're talking about. Those two people are conservative, more conservative than I in the traditional sense, but they have understood the threat to democracy and the understanding that we have to have a truth-based system and we have to have a broad-based coalition that is pro-democracy. You know, now that I think about it, I should I should try to get Pete and John on just to have a conversation about religion, about faith, about the existence of God. Pete is such a great source for this. I am Jewish myself, and he has helped me understand so much about evangelicals and how that community has changed and been corrupted in a real sense. And he has been he's just a wealth of information, particularly for people who are scratching their heads and saying, they call themselves Christian, but they're in favor of all these things yeah. that don't seem very Christian. Can someone explain that to me? Yeah. He can explain that. He's very Yeah, good. he sure can. Now, before we go, how can folks follow you, your work at the Washington Post, find your wonderful new podcast, Jen Rubin's Green Room, and all the great work that you're doing? All right. For the podcast, just go to Apple Podcasts or go to Politicon, which is the company that's helping to produce it. It's called Jen Rubin's green room. And if you want a link to it, you can find the link on my Twitter feed, which is uh, J Rubin blogger. That's a way to figure and find me at the Washington Post. Uh, I have a column there. You can put Jennifer Rubin, Washington Post in your search bar and you will find me. You will, it will pop up as well as all the nasty things people say about me, by the way. <laughs> if you have you ever tried Googling yourself, it's such an anti-body experience. Really? They said that about me? Yes. Um, but, uh, and I am on uh, MSNBC, so uh, you could catch snippets of me. And um, I do a lot of podcasts now because they're really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Politicon's making some good shows. One of my new favorites of that I found last year is uh, sisters-in-law, Barb McQuaid, and Joyce Vance, and just and great. Some of my my friends that I initially made on Twitter, who are now some of my best friends in the news and legal world. 
I saw Barb, who was on our show, Barb McQuaid, uh, uh, she was on the show a couple months ago, gave you a big shout out, gave Jen Rubens Green oh, a big my. shout out. Yeah. I, I'm always so thrilled because being a former lawyer, uh, the best compliment I can ever be paid is from a lawyer saying, oh, okay, yeah, that's a good argument or that's yeah. really smart. I think, oh, wow, I'm still like in the club of lawyers. That's <laughs> That's awesome. Lastly, is there anything uh, important that I forgot to ask you? Gosh, um, dogs. I am a dog nut. Um, I have a wonderful English setter named Amos. And if anybody has dog pictures that they ever want to put in my feed, I will almost always respond to it, particularly if you're an English setter owner out there. So I'm the kind of person who watches three hours of Westminster dog show. I'm the kind of person, I'm that strange lady on the street who crosses the street to come pet your dog. That's me. Oh man, you just opened up the floodgates. I'm going to have to send you some Instagram of Artemis, the uh, the, the, the shepherd, uh, the talking shepherd. He's <laughs> just, okay. So, and I'm going to send you pictures of um, Bailey Abigail and Charles Mingus III, our two dogs. So <laughs> there you, there you have it. Well, thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. I know I, I went over by three minutes now, so I really, really appreciate your time. This was really, really a treat. Thanks, Jen. My pleasure. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button or follow, and you can write a review. Give us 4.8 stars or five. It really does help us get discovered so more people can join in the conversation. Or you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E and S's and Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. <laughs>